Welcome to a special bonus episode of Bonjour Chai. I'm Avi Feingold, and we here at Bonjour Chai have decided to start a new series of longer interviews that will be released monthly. Each episode will be an opportunity to really stretch out and hear about a person or an idea that might benefit from a longer treatment. For this first one, I sat down with Mark Moisha Bain. When I interviewed him late last year, he was the president of the Orthodox Union, the largest umbrella organization of Orthodox congregations in North America, and the folks behind the OU kosher symbol. He is a native Montrealer and a partner at the global firm of Ropes and Gray. His term as president ended in early January after six years of service. Be sure to stick around after the interview to hear Phoebe and I chat about my talk with him and stay tuned every month for more of these bonus episodes. With us here today is Moishi Bain, and uh, I'm very excited uh, to have him here as the uh, president of the OU, the Union of Orthodox Congregations of America. Um, you're actually the uh, probably the first ever in the history of the OU to have a top line of three executives um, that are all from Montreal, that are all two out of the three are the sons of prominent rabbis. We have uh, yourself, uh, who's a Montrealer. We have Rabbi Moshe Howard, who's a Montreal, and Rabbi Josh Joseph, who is a Montrealer. Um, if I can start then, because we are a Canadian uh, publication, uh, can you give us some of the differences that you see between the Canadian and American Jewish communities within the OU, both in the past and where things are going? Well, I... I what, what anybody who becomes familiar with the array of communities across North America will very quickly discover that Montreal, in particular, Toronto to some degree, but Montreal much more so, is a far more traditional town than most American communities. Mm-hmm. Uh, and by traditional, I mean that the connection to Judaism is far more intense, particularly for those who are less affiliated and less observant. I always say that, that the, the shul that you drive to in Montreal better be Orthodox. That's right. And it used to be like that in the United States in the 1950s and 60s. But the United States has unfortunately, tragically moved away from that. And those who are not observant tend to be incredibly uncomfortable in almost every synagogue. There are exceptions, but that's the general, the general um, theme of, of the direction that American Orthodoxy has taken. Um, there are efforts to reach out to the non-Orthodox, but it's not endemic to the synagogue experience. You can walk into a typical synagogue, and in Montreal as well, many synagogues. And if you're not conversant with the Siddur, with the prayer book, and you're not familiar with the Hebrew language, you're going to feel like a foreigner and very unwelcome. And I, w- I once made a proposal at the Orthodox Union that we should require every member synagogue to have page numbers in the front of the synagogue. And even if there's no one in the room who needs them, it would be an incredible expression of concern and welcoming that everybody should be welcome and whether you have a background or not. Montreal still has that connection. And that's a very significant value and, and tradition that I hope is retained because it's very beautiful. Another difference, and just before, I, before I conclude, another difference between Canadian Jewry and American Jewry is that I find that maybe I'm misreading it, but on, in the experiences I'm having, there is a far tighter relationship to Zionism and to Israel. And I don't know if, if it's just the individuals or the synagogues that I'm interacting with and the schools I'm interacting with, but I'm, I'm, it's coming across to me as a much more intimate relationship to Israel. Uh, someone commented to me while I was in Montreal recently on my recent visit that, the re- that I'm in fact correct. And the reason that they gave to me was that 
we, we even in Montreal, there is a, as an Anglophone in Montreal, as a Jewish Anglophone in Montreal, you don't achieve the same degree of comfort that this is your home and you belong as you would in a typical uh, Anglophone city. And therefore, that inures to the benefit of retaining an identity independent of the culture in general. And maybe that explains both dimensions, both the traditional Jewish identity as well as the connection to Israel. Sure. And I, I would add to that that there's um, – we don't have as deep roots within the country, meaning a large part of the uh, population is immigrants uh, that come later uh, than the immigrant experience in America. Uh, the Sephardic experience is much more deeper in uh, Canada than it is in America. And as a result, you know, we don't – even though we feel very much tied to Canada. We feel very connected um, and very proud of, as Canadians. I, I would venture to say that um, those ties allow for enough variation to be able to say, well, I'm also connected to Israel in, a, in an as deep a way. Um, what do you see really as the role, you know, um, of the OU in 2022 and beyond, right? I, I've been reading some of your recent articles. Um, I know that you have a lot of focus on learning, on the relationship um, of learning over a lifetime and not just within a day school environment. Um, how does the OU fit in um, to where Orthodox Judaism is going in the future? I, the, the role of a national enterprise like the Orthodox Union is not to be international the, enterprise. Let's hope. <laughs> okay, but for the for, for, I, North America is one entity. For for my purposes, I guess as a dual citizen, I, I look at things perhaps through that lens. And um, the the way we look at our role is very much as a provider to the local communities, mm-hmm. because as as is the case with politics, religion is all local. And it's really a connection to the synagogue, to the day school, to the other institutions within a community that allows for individuals and families to grow in their Jewish identity and their religious connection. The Orthodox Union's role is to provide the tools and the inspiration and the direction to the local communities to increase their experience and give their congregants and their community members a greater access to religious growth. So, you know, I, I, there are areas I think that the OU um, is really, really great at this, especially when it comes to NCSY, moving on to JLIC, the Jewish uh, Leadership uh, Learning Initiative on campus. I was actually recruited uh, to be a JLI couple, myself and my wife, uh, with Rabbi Haber. It was a wonderful uh, potential experience. It didn't end up working out, but my brother-in-law was a JLI uh, rabbi on campus, and I've seen so many uh, of my colleagues doing great work um, in partnership with Hillel, um, not just independent as an organization of its own entity. And that um, there's a lot of great stuff happening in that transition from going to NCSY to JLIC back to shul as an adult um, and learning as an adult. I think that there is something that you guys are doing great um, as a way in which these transitions are happening and managed. Um, what do you see the role of shul in terms of lifelong learning? I know that, you know, I've always pointed out that Orthodox congregations more often than not have um, learning as an essential component um, to their ritual practice, meaning the idea idea that like people don't just come to shul on Shabbat morning, they will also go and find some uh, avenue of learning um, as sort of personal growth. Um, you know, do you think that that's just something that all Jews um, in the OU shuls do anyways? Is there something that you feel that the OU should be shepherding more? How does the relationship work in your mind between all of these things, the shul, the school, and the individual? Well, I, I think there's a, there's a dual role that the Orthodox Union plays in that regard. Number one, 
is because we have a, a, as you will say, an international platform to be able to profess priorities and perspectives, we are very eager to put on the agenda the importance of Torah study for adults. And just as a is a very large microphone that we have, and by repeating it constantly, we think we're we're empowering the local rabbis and leaders to encourage their congregants to get involved in, in Torah study. Number two is that there are tools that are very valuable in engaging those, particularly those with lesser backgrounds in Jewish study, that on a localized level, they may be too difficult or onerous for a local rabbi or a local congregation to undertake. And therefore, what we try to do is to create those tools on a, on a, on a very broad basis that could be used to assist the local synagogues. And therefore, for example, we, we created a curriculum uh, that's now being used by rabbis in 140 communities, both in North America as well as in other parts of the world, in Torah study that they, they have, that we started four years ago. It's called Smichat Chaver, which is a learning program that we, we introduced with three groups four years ago. And now there's 140 with 3,500 people participating on a weekly basis. The, the curriculum that was put together is an incredibly effective curriculum that takes far too much time for a local rabbi or teacher to be able to put together. So we're providing the local synagogue, the local educator, the local rabbi with the tools to be able to do their job. In addition, the online materials that we've created are as well a gateway that when a person wants to start, for example, learning Talmud and doesn't have much of a background, they're able to go on our app, Al-Daf, which is a Talmud app, and listen to a class in English on a page of, of Talmud and then go to a, a local class that may be quicker and more sophisticated and have the platform to be able to do that. So those are the two functions that we see ourselves playing in that regard. How much of that then is focused on, um, you know, the Orthodox community that you see yourself serving? How much do you see yourselves as a big tent for a larger Orthodox community um, that may not be part of the OU? And how much do you see yourself as larger part of the, the, the larger community in terms of um, other non-Orthodox um, people who may be living around there? Well, the, the, within the Orthodox community itself, the OU views its constituency as being the largest tent within Orthodoxy. Uh, we, we don't view ourselves as representing a limited constituency. And in fact, we have different programs and different materials that talk to different parts of the Orthodox community. Uh, we, we start, obviously, with the premise that although in Montreal, MK is the symbol, the Orthodox Union, the OU symbol, is 75% of the kosher market internationally. Um, and therefore, and that's used by everybody throughout the, throughout the Orthodox community. And that has created an entree to a relationship with the broader Orthodox community in many regards. So we don't view ourselves as, well, there's this group that represents this part of Orthodoxy and another group that represents another, but rather we have a function that we're trying to provide. There are different pieces of the functions that we provide that talk to different people. But for example, Yachad, which is one of our premier programs that deals with developmentally disabled young adults and, and teenagers, we service everyone from the very left-wing modern Orthodox to Hasidic. And that kind of program is very appealing to everybody. Our Torah programs up, appeals to the entire spectrum. For example, we started a, an initiative called the Women's Initiative four years ago. And one of the pieces, which with many, many pieces, one of the pieces is a nach, you know, learning, learning the Bible um, on a daily basis. We have 3,500 women who are now learning it. And they 
comprise the entire spectrum of orthodoxy and beyond. Many non-orthodox people take advantage of the learning tools that we put out there. But the truth is that our relationship to the non-orthodox world is primarily through NCSY. And NCSY, which is our youth program, which reaches out to students of non-observant backgrounds, and most of whom are in public schools and non-Jewish day schools, is our way of connecting those with a lesser opportunity to know of their heritage to the opportunity to study about their heritage. And once again, the focus there as well is about education and just allowing people to have the tools to be able to make decisions on the type of Judaism that they want to pursue. So, you know, I find that fascinating because, um, you know, I, my daughter literally just came back from an NCSY Shabbaton uh, last night, late. Uh, She had a great time. She's in a Jewish day school, but she's one of these kids that likes, you know, doing Jewish stuff, not just uh, in Shul on Shabbos morning, but she wants to spend a whole Shabbos with with people from across uh, Eastern Canada. So that was great. She went to Niagara Falls. She had a great time. But you brought up the, the Women's Initiative, um, which um, it's something that I found fascinating uh, and found, you know, interesting to look at. And since its inception, right, it was started um, by the OU. It's headed now by Rebetzin Adina Schmidman, who is uh, the daughter-in-law of the Rabbi, of, uh, Rabbi Yeshua Schmidman, also of Montreal, who gave, uh, who ordained me and I feel a deep connection with him. Um, And, you know, since the beginning, right, I've been a reader of the Jewish Action magazine since I was, before I could even understand it. I still even have, I got to show you, I have have a stack of of OU uh, Jewish Actions from the 80s and 90s still, right, that my father used to get all the OUs and uh, all the Jewish Actions and he would read them and I would read them and I would, I've even, so I've kept, you know, dozens and dozens of them. One of the things that I always saw in Jewish Action, for example, was how, you know, women's learning was uh, always at the forefront. There was a, a lot of discussion around it. There was back and forth, but there was always um, at the the leading edge of saying, you know, women can and should be learning Talmud. Um, Gemara study for women is a, definitely an acceptable part of the Orthodox dialogue. Um, and yet, the Women's Learning Initiative—not to say that they refuse to to teach uh, Torah Shabalpeta, the Oral Torah, Mishnah, and Gemara—but none of the programs that they offer really focus on Torah Shabalpeta on on, on learning of, of Mishnah, of Talmud, of rabbinic literature, um, almost as if to say that this is something that we reserve for the men. It's not, we're not refusing women to, to learn that, but when we present women teaching, right, this is what we do. And it seems to send a message that, um, you know, more than many other things uh, that the OU is doing these days or not, that um, we want to um, take a certain stance um, with regards to what our orthodoxy means, and we are willing to forego the uh, Torah sh- uh, learning, right, for a lot of women, uh, you know, in, in, in this, and, and instead of that, we have women learning nach, right, and women learning machshava, women learning ideas, women learning uh, biblical literature, um, Jewish history, and things like that, and it's not to say that the women that are teaching are not presenting uh, rabbinic ideas, but that, like, let's be safe and, and up, you know, and that's that. Is, was there thought put into this? Was it just, I can't imagine it was accidental. Well, I, I, if you're such a fan of Jewish action, you may want to look back at our issue about the Siyam Ashas, which is the event that takes place every seven and a half years where people are covering the entirety of the Talmud. Mm-hmm. And we profiled many, many students who 
experience that enjoyment of studying the entire Talmud on that cycle. And we highlighted, I forget That's whether what it was I'm three. Or- That's exactly my point. But, and yet we don't have any women teaching Torah Shabbal Peh in, you know, with, within the breadth of the amount of thousands of hours of Torah that is being pushed out by the, brought out by the OU. And yet the Torah there is only uh, by men for, for Talmud study. It's an interesting observation. Um, okay. Um, I mean, like, you know, I think that it's areas like this, uh, as well as areas, uh, I don't want to get too much into the uh, uh, women as clergy issue because I'm too close to the matter. My my wife is actually an Orthodox woman who is a clergy member uh, in, a, in a shul in uh, in Canada. She wasn't an OU shul beforehand. Um, you know, and, and it's the message that I think that I've been speaking to people, you know, in anticipation of this interview, and I'm not in an OU shul. Uh, the Shar Shemaim in Montreal, is, a, as we say, we're a pre-denominational organization uh, because we're 175 years old, um, but it's halachic, and we were in an OU shul before, but I'm talking to a lot of OU people, uh, people that are in OU shuls, and the sense that I get is that um, without saying that the OU is sliding to the right, but the OU seems to be cutting off the left edge of what they consider to be orthodoxy, and I was wondering if you can comment about that. I would just comment, and and the the reference to sliding to the right that you managed to foot into. And like put I said, into. I don't think that the OU is sliding to the right. I think that the OU has always had a big tent, but I think that the OU seems to be um, taking a certain areas of orthodoxy and saying, this is not orthodox for us. No, I think what we're doing is we're retaining the practices that we've had. And other people are changing their practices and then complaining that the OU is not changing as well. So... I, I think we have been pretty consistent in the culture and the approach to to orthodoxy. It's the same today as it was 20 years ago and 40 years ago. And um, that's the approach that we intend to, to continue with. I think the, the expansions that we pursue are expansions not of the spectrum of orthodoxy, but rather of bringing forth orthodox principles that were always the tradition and just trying to do them better and making them more accessible. For example. But when it comes to innovation and and – you know, playing with the standards of what orthodoxy was in, in the past decades, we tend not to go there. Others are invited to do so. That's their prerogative, but that's not our approach. Well, you have to admit then that 50 years ago, 75 years ago, women weren't learning Gemara and doing Dafyomi, and yet women are doing it now. So the OU is. I, I'm, not sure, I'm not sure that that's correct. And if you look back in, in Eastern Europe, you could find. Yeah, they um, were individuals. Absolutely. I'm not going to deny that, but the widespread acceptance. Of, of the role of women, the expanded role of women. Women were not synagogue presidents, and yet uh, the is OU it, is this accepted. discussion about women? No, is, is it, no. Is that the topic of our discussion? <laughs> no, then? no. It's just if it is, <laughs> we should start again. We'll talk about women for forty-five minutes. No, I think I didn't understand that that was the topic. It's of not our at all. I can. We can talk about many other topics. I just I I'm using this as a lens to sort of say I think that um, there's a lot of innovation that has happened that orthodoxy has accepted, and um, there's a lot of ortho- there's places where the OU has innovated. Um, there's places where the OU hasn't innovated, and I'm trying to figure out what um, orthodoxy, I guess, means for the OU. And I'm not trying to be combative. I don't really want to, you know, I think this is, a, as we call it, an argument or discussion for the sake we of were, heaven. I, I didn't know we were intending to have a machloket of any nature. I'm just asking a question. I wasn't trying, I'm not trying to have a machloket. I'm not trying to have a, an argument here, but I, I just want to get a sense of where we're at. So I, I think, what, as I said a couple of moments ago, Innovation has two meanings. Mm -hmm. One is you have a principle and an approach and you're trying to innovate as to how to implement it. And then you have a different agenda. 
And the, the, we, we are very engaged in innovation when it comes to our practices to make them more effective. And that's what we continue to do. But we're not changing the standards of orthodoxy in any way, shape or form. And uh, we tend to continue to use those parameters. Sure. You know, you want to be a big tent, you have to make as many people comfortable as possible. And like a blanket that's covering people, you're going to pull from one side, you're going to expose people on the other side. And what the Orthodox Union has been doing and hopes to continue to do is to be as comfortable as possible to everybody. I, sh I, I suspect that every segment of Orthodoxy will have complaints about something the OU does sure. that does not mm -hmm. reflect their personal practices. And we can't satisfy everyone's personal practices in every regard. I think we're covering almost everybody in as much as we could be expected to do. Sure. Um, one of the areas actually has nothing to do with women, but it's um, related to a couple of the um, uh, OU advocacy press releases that have come out recently that, again, I've heard from colleagues and uh, friends of mine, is that um, regardless of what the OU stance uh, regarding um, the current marriage discussions in the U.S. Uh, Congress and moving up to the Senate eventually um, – are that the OU seems to make, uh, be making statements that might be alienating a lot of members of the community um, that are gay, that not, are not necessarily looking to get married in an orthodox context, but that the OU doesn't seem to create a place or a space for gay members of the, Can you give of the community. give me examples of, of yeah. what you're referencing? So, so I'll give you a good example. The, um, in June, for example, the... Um, the OU put out a statement regarding the overturning of Roe versus Wade, right? The OU put out a statement. It was really interesting. It was well nuanced that said that the Orthodox Union is unable to either mourn or celebrate the Supreme Court's overturning of Roe v. Wade, right? And that the situation was essentially too fraught for the nuanced result that the OU recognized was so needed. Because on the one hand, right, um, there was a recognition that uh, Judaism, uh, uh, Orthodoxy was uh, wanted to uh, preserve this idea that life was precious and fundamentally important, but also recognizing that the halacha not only allows but mandates many situations where or abortion would be needed and um, and would not want to live in a country where these things would ha um, where it would be forbidden because then you might be uh, forced to to break the law in order to fulfill a halacha right so the OU was really nuanced in there and it seemed like um, you were signaling to both flanks right that you wanted to have a big tent right and yet right when you see the need for religious freedom when it comes to same-sex marriage in america the letter is unequivocal doesn't leave to doesn't seem to leave space for individuals within the firm community to express who they are right without any fear of being ostracized within the community so i know that the letter was specific and there was a clarification that it specifically had to do with um religious freedom um, but there was no sense that we nevertheless, you know, want to welcome individuals regardless of their marital, uh, you know, their marital status or not. We, we, for people who don't want to be married, right, there's space for Orthodox Jews who are gay, who are lesbian, who are transgender um, within the Orthodox communities um, and that that wasn't present there at all. And I had people tell me or remark to me that that, that was a, a noticeable absence. I didn't notice. So I, I mean, okay, but people do. I guess what I would ask is, you know, to to be more general, what do you think the the space is within an uh, an OU, an Orthodox Union member shul for members of the LGBT community? I think you'd have to ask every rabbi of a shul what practices they believe is appropriate for their congregation, and um, I, I I would direct you to the Respect for Marriage Act which was just passed by the Senate, in which the Orthodox Union, along with other 
uh, religious organizations worked with the LBGT community to reach a, a legislation, and we were at the forefront of those efforts to allow for the gay community to preserve its rights and its protections, which we are major advocates of, and as well as simultaneously ensuring that the Orthodox community will be able to keep halacha and not be punished for it, which very often is the agenda um, of, of many of the LGBT activist community. Mm-hmm. So when it comes to the LGBT community, it's important to go back to the community, but sometimes the OU will step in and say halakhically, we don't accept this. So you're saying that there are there are spaces, well, to the women women and clergy, right? And, and again, I really respect a lot of the OU. I'm just trying to get a sense. I, I, I was an NCSY advisor for many, many years. <laughs> this is not, again, um, about, um, you know, poking holes. I just, I would like to get a sense because there's definitely a lot of people that respect the OU and want to get a sense of where the OU's position actually is because, um, you know, sometimes it can be confusing. So, um, you know, when women were becoming clergy members of the OU Shoals, the OU went and said, Atkan, right, we cannot do this anymore. Uh, I think, sir, in light of the fact, Rabbi, that your wife is a Orthodox clergy and is not inconsistent, is, is not consistent with Orthodox practices, I don't think we're appropriate as a as a duo to be discussing that issue. I'm not trying to get into the halacha. That's what I'm trying keep to get on at. Coming back to, you keep on coming back to it. I think it's inappropriate for you to be raising that issue when you have a family relationship that is very much so, invested okay, in so it. Okay, so we can, we can, if, I, if, if, if I'm going to recuse myself. My issues that. that you don't have a personal agenda regarding. So let me put it this way then. I'll ask and... Um, to, to generalize it, I think that the OU is one of the most wonderful organizations when it comes to conscious transparency, right? I think that it's a model for other conscious organizations. I think that, um, that the, whenever I get a, have a question, right, I can call the OU and I will get a straight answer on whether um, the halacha is the, – the, the reason why the OU – this is kosher for the OU, the reason why this is dairy, whether it's dairy equipment, whether it isn't. Um, there are many conscious agencies who you call and you basically say this is it or this is not it, right? Uh, you, you accept our halacha, accept our tradition, uh, our psak and our you know, halachic decision about it. We're not going to be open to, to being discussed about this. And I thought – I think that that's a beautiful, wonderful thing thing. Um, how does the OU make their halachic decisions outside of the kashrus realm and when it comes to communal decisions and discussions? We very rarely do. And, and except for two issues, we've never taken a national position on how a synagogue should operate. Okay. The only two issues that we have were the concept of having a machitza between men and women sitting in a synagogue and the issue of women clergy. Those are the only two issues. And the only reason that those issues were brought to the fore was because of an enormous demand of the rabbinic community coming to the OU and saying, we want the OU to weigh in. In every other area, the rabbinic world has not asked the OU to to weigh in, and therefore we defer to the local rabbi, which we believe should be the first instant in any event. Okay, so that's – there you go. That's great. Thank you. does that extend then to, for example, uh, with the Women's Learning Initiative? And was, was it a, is it an oversight or is it, was there something deliberate about not having women learn or teach? Tarsha I, I think we've already covered that ground and I've given you okay. an explanation. <laughs> All right. Um, okay. Um, what other areas I think are um, areas of growth that you think the OU uh, would love to uh, present and do you think that are areas of growth within the OU um, that are exciting that you want to be able to talk about? 
Well, I think, I think we're, we're trying to focus now on a number of areas of engagement and Jewish identity that uh, the community has, is not that focused upon. For example, the principles of belief. You, know, you have many Orthodox Jews who identify themselves as Orthodox who really don't even know what Orthodox beliefs are and just know the practices. But the practices of Judaism and Orthodoxy in particular, without understanding the underpinnings and the values and the principles of faith, is a, eventually a very shallow experience. So we're trying to reinvigorate the introduction into the normative Jewish experience of understanding principles of faith, to understand what we really believe and what the ideology is that under, underpins Torah Judaism. And obviously a, uh, a threshold dimension is the study of Torah, but it also depends on what parts of Torah that one studies. And then studying the Talmud and studying the, the, the Chumash is incredibly valuable, but there are also other books that I think will give you greater access to the philosophical underpinnings of Judaism, which I think most people haven't engaged in. And we hope over the next couple of years to start a greater involvement in, in helping communities explore are, those ideas. What are some of those some of those books? Is this is a, a big area for me? I went and I studied, you know, medieval Jewish thought. I think that more Jews should be studying the well, more Nebuchadnezzar, for example. Books, what are the contemporary books that you would recommend? Um, I would recommend, um, I would recommend absolutely The Lonely Man of Faith. I would recommend, uh, Rupture and Reconstruction by Chaim Soloveitchik. I think uh, there's an expanded edition that has come out recently, um, that I think really, uh, describes, uh, orthodoxy in a very fascinating, uh, way of thinking. Uh, I was, I've, am I, if I was putting together a canon of, of, of something for literate, uh, Jewish, uh, thinking of, for orthodoxy in the 20th century, uh, um, I would add those two. I would definitely add Nomos, a narrative by Robert Cover. I don't know if you've ever read that. Um, uh, do you know, have you ever, are you aware of this uh, yeah, essay? No, so Robert no, Cover no. was a uh, law professor, I believe, at Harvard or Yale. Uh, everybody was talking about him as a short uh, listed uh, for, you know, even though he was in his 40s before he, when he passed away, that he was a future uh, Supreme Court justice uh, p- pick. And he wrote a wonderful book, uh, wrote a wonderful essay called Nomos and Narrative about the, the intertwined relationship between narrative and law and how the two must coexist. Um, and using Judaism as an example. And I, I found as always um, been a very cogent argument for how uh, Halacha and Agadah have to coexist together. Um, so that's a, a very important work, uh, I think, for understanding modern uh, approaches to Judaism. How Do We Know This by Jay Harris, I think, would be a wonderful book that I think people need to read to understand uh, the evolution of halachic thought. Uh, I would, the more Nebuchim, very definitely elements and sections of it would, uh, would be really uh, uh, essential for understanding um, the alternative ideas. Uh, when it comes to, for, again, for people that are really want to dive deep, when it comes to the principles of faith, I would really recommend uh, Mark Shapiro, The Limits of Orthodox Theology, um, to, who discusses the nature of the 13 principles of faith and how uh, at various times many, many great Orthodox thinkers each had different uh, challenges um, to these individuals without necessarily looking at uh, saying that if you're missing you know, one out of the 13, you're, uh, you're, you're a Kofa, you're a heretic. Uh, Mark Shapiro, who's an Orthodox thinker um, and professor, really cogently shows that these are historically we've always... Um, had people who have had issues with one or the other. Um, so, they, you know, it's just off the top of my head. I think there's a lot of great stuff, but I'm, I'm really curious what the OU wants to teach. <laughs> I, I think most of the, the references that you made that I'm familiar with are books that are 
about Judaism. They're not teaching Judaism. They're studying Judaism. And they're, they're analyzing, these are the different approaches. We are much more interested in teaching the books that are the source material on studying. For example, Rabbi Luzata, the Ramchal's books, Terech Hashem, Mesilis Yisharim, that set out the principles of faith, rather than the books that talk about, well, this one says this, and this one says this, and this was wrong. I think people are being deprived of access to original sources and, and books that lay out the principles rather than academic analysis, which I think is very attractive. I engage in reading those types of books constantly, but that's not where I get my religious growth from. That's where I get my intellectual analysis sure, from. Sure. But, but I think our community is spending too much time learning about Judaism, not learning Judaism itself. Um, sure. I would. So then uh, in challenge for that, I think that I have a, I have a list. It's not my list uh, compiled initially. I think John Levinson, Levinson compiled it. But I think that there's a, a wonderful list that I've taught from in the past called the 50 most important sugyot that every Jew needs to know. Um, I think that that, to me, right, is not always opening up a piece of Talmud and saying, let's learn a chapter of Talmud. I think that that's a fundamentally important way to say there are pieces of Talmud that you never really encounter unless you go and say, we're going to learn, quote unquote, quote, important sections of the Talmud. Um, and in that sense, I think that that's an important thing for, for, for people to know, because we're often stuck and saying, well, we're either going to learn the Dafyomi and we're just going to go um, through it um, very, uh, you know, rapidly in order to go through it and be done every seven and a half years. But then there's sometimes when we should be able to say there are major pieces of Talmud that everybody needs to know. Um, I think that uh, books like Simi Peter's Learning to Read Midrash, which is a very orthodox book, um, but also gives you an understanding of what the nature of Midrash is. And again, that to me is learning a primary source simply because you're learning Midrashim, but also understanding that it's not just legends, but it's also not just um, this like truth that just happens to be written down a couple thousand years later. Right? The nature of what Midrash actually is, the nature of what the rabbis are talking about is important because because the skills that one gets from being able to learn um, how to learn Torah um, is important. And I think that that, if you ask me, is what's missing um, in the Orthodox community is we often dive right into the primary sources, but we don't take that step back and say, what is this about? Why are we doing this? Where is this from? Okay. But right. again, it's not a, it's not, I'm not a, it's a, as we say, a machloket l'shem shemayim. It's an art. It's a, I really believe it's, it's not a machloket. Exactly. <laughs> there you go. Um, I think that's wonderful. And I think that um, what the OU has been doing in terms of the OU is one of the earliest um, proponents of Judaism and podcasting um, was putting out a lot of podcasts uh, way earlier than most other people. And now the other people are finally catching up to the amount of time that the OU has devoted, the amount of hours the OU has devoted towards audio content on its, uh, uh, on its website. And I think that there's something really great and, and, and important and valuable about that as well. Um, so, you know, I, I can't wait to see what some of these, um, initiatives and how they will bear fruit. I, um, I, like I said, the OU has always been a, a, an integral part of my life um, and it's been around uh, you know, forever. I remember the few times that I would go to the National Yarche as an NCSY advisor and I would get to stop into the, uh, the OU offices. They were still in Midtown then and it was an important, it was felt like I was going somewhere special. Um, so, uh, you know, I would like to wish you, you know, a lot of success and I hope that a lot of these things bear fruit. I think that um, I Ideas are really the core thing. If I if I, I I just started teaching a bar mitzvah student and I said I showed him the, the Talmud. If I asked the important pieces of Talmud, it's the Torah of Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, 
right, who uh, who gets uh, uh, spirited out of Jerusalem, right, during the siege, and uh, he saves uh, the scholars. And I said that that's because Rabbi Yochum ben Zakkai, and we are following in his footsteps, are um, uh, recognized that Judaism is not a Judaism of ritual and culture, and then if that went away, that that would be okay, and Judaism could still survive as long as it had ideas, and that uh, the more ideas the OU puts out, I think the, the greater it is. Thank you. Excellent. All right. Well, thank you so much for taking the time in your day. And um, I hope that you should uh, feel free to come on any other time for um, telling us anything new that's coming on with the OU. Like I said, as a Canadian member of, of the senior team, as the Canadian president, it's always been, uh, it's, it's, it's been a source of pride for us Montrealers to see those three names at the top line and uh, come back anytime. All right, Phoebe, you just heard this interview I just did with Moishi Bain, uh, Mark Bain. What did you think of it? Um, all I had known about the OU was that they're involved in deciding whether or not food gets that stamp of kosher approval. I had no idea they had anything to do with anything else. So this was a real eye-opener for me. Yeah, so I mean, they are uh, the uh blue ribbon so to speak they are the major uh, kosher certifying organization although there are hundreds and hundreds of other kosher certifying organizations um many of which are in Canada right here but uh in addition to that they do have uh they are an umbrella organization for many orthodox uh congregations uh they are not exclusive in that you know you can't you can't just go uh you know in the conservative movement for example you have the uh you have the United Synagogue of Conservative Judaism you have the uh, Reconstructionist Association of Synagogues, and there is, you know, a little more centrality there. Um, there are many, there are Orthodox synagogues that don't aren't under the OU, but it is by and large the umbrella organization for Orthodox congregations, and they have a public policy um, arm, and they do a lot of it. They have NCSY, which is the National Conference of Synagogue Youth, which is their youth wing, which does a lot of youth programming, um, and uh, they have a lot of other things in addition to the kosher, um, you know, arm of their certificate, what they certify and stuff like that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I mean, the, the beginning of the interview... What really struck me was um, Moshe Bain's discussion of the differences between Canadian and American Orthodox Jews, but just sort of the two communities. And a lot of what he said struck me as really in keeping with what I've observed anecdotally as a secular American Jew living in Canada, really just this idea that um, the Canadian Jewish community is on the whole sort of a bit more traditional and a bit seeming like the U.S., Jewish community maybe a few decades ago, or maybe even more than that, just in terms of, um, I don't even know how to put it, because it's going to sound, honestly, there's no way to put it that doesn't sound judgmental against American or Canadian or both, because I don't mean it judgmentally at all, but just, yeah, sort of a more like a community, um, more inwardly focused, maybe in Canada and in the US, not necessarily that it's a more assimilated community, but just... Maybe. I don't even know how to put it. Again, like I said, there's no way to... Yeah, it, I think um, I think that it is more neutrally. aligned. I think that America 
in the context that we think about it, right, I actually started realizing that America is more the exception in terms of uh, its uh, evolution of Judaism, the way in, in which Judaism has moved in a, in a more independent direction, a less traditional direction, um, and that the rest of the world actually is more like Canada in that there is more of a, tra- a sense of tradition, more of a sense of, um, you know, fealty towards uh, the way in which things used to be, and that even if one is liberal, there is still a sense of traditionalism about it you know the the line that i give all the time is uh in montreal the shoal that i the, the the standard way of thinking about judaism is that the shoal that i drive to on shabbos better be an orthodox shoal so please explain that to me i, <laughs> right. I heard you say that and <laughs> yeah. I, it was so completely lost so in the me. sense yeah. that there are people who um will not think twice about driving to, to services on saturday morning Right, right, because in, that would be violating. That I got that otherwise. Part, yes. Yeah, yes. but God forbid that I should go to a liberal congregation that says that it's fine to drive on Shabbos and that has a I parking see. lot that is open. Right, I'm not going to go to that place. Right, I see. I want my synagogue to be traditional and to 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 have all of these rules. Right, I want my rabbi to be very religious and I want my synagogue to be very religious, even if I'm not, because that's mm-hmm. the way that I approach Judaism. I think that that is you know a more authentic form of Judaism. I think that that's. Uh, for so many possible reasons, but that that's a very Canadian way of approaching um, Jewish life. I think that makes sense what you're saying about the U.S. being the exception, because what I found myself thinking as I was listening to the beginning of the interview, I found myself thinking other things later in the interview. But the beginning was really, so I'm very familiar with U.S. Jewish things from being an American Jew, and I'm very familiar with French Jewish things from having studied um, French Jewry in grad school. And it really made me think that Canadian Jews are sort of, obviously, you know, every group is unique, but sort of somewhere between the two, in a lot of ways, Um, like some kind of point, some midway point, maybe not in the very center between French and US, just in terms of Well, I was trying to think of, I was trying to pinpoint what it is. And then I started to think that a lot has to do with just where different countries mainstream, not Jewish, but just mainstream culture and politics fall with respect to Jews and specifically with respect to Israel. And that because the U.S. has this sort of political history of being so much more pro-Israel and than many other um, similar countries, Jews stand out less for being pro-Israel in the States than in maybe France and maybe even Canada. And I, I don't know, that was just one theory. Yeah, I, I don't, yeah, I don't know. I, my, my sense is always that the, the differences lie in the, in the, you know, we didn't need to reject as much. Right. And, and that along with that comes this, this denial of a need to reject tradition, right? We don't have to say that like what was in Europe was automatically bad, which is the American approach, right? Um, and as such, American, uh, European Judaism and the way in which Judaism was practiced is still part of, you know, the way in which we feel, you know, we practice our Judaism. how Israel fits into that. I think that, you know, classical Zionism really does has this emergence from Europe, maybe, or mm-hmm. something. And uh, I don't know. I think th- it is interesting because America is, you know, seen as, you know, we do see this notion of, like, patriotism. And if you're, a, you know, a true American patriot, you you shouldn't have these, quote-unquote, dual allegiances, which, are, which is something which uh, isn't 
you know, thrown at any other Jewish community in other countries necessarily. Oh, I would think in France it would be more so, right? The whole idea that you're only yeah. French and that a hyphenated identity is problematic. Maybe is... so. Maybe sorry, you're right. Maybe that is exactly why in you know Quebec, especially, it's where I think about it. Right? We have this notion of like, well, you know, Zionism is for the Jews and everybody else, you know, whatever. Whereas in America, because of this, especially lately, because of the evangelical movement towards Zionism. Right. There is this growing acceptance of that piece of it. But sure. yeah, I don't know. I, is it because Canada is yeah. a Commonwealth country, I wonder, and more Possibly. sort of connected to Europe in that way? Maybe. Um, but yeah, but I think that those are the big hallmarks, right, of Canadian Judaism versus American mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. that way. I mean, that part of the interview I found interesting and um, not particularly fraught maybe compared with um, (laughs) where it went um so the first phrase that kind of jumped out at me was um very left-wing modern orthodox as being a group under the umbrella of i guess ou um or just Orthodox Judaism, just right? Because remember Judaism. that they're... So, so this is yes, something interesting. But I was just going yeah. to explain why this jumped out at me. From a secular perspective, I should say, like, in the secular world, I am not far left. However, from a secular perspective, any Orthodox Jew, any very observant person of really any religion would probably be seen as, like, a small C conservative politically just because they're traditionalistic, right? You Mm -hmm. know, so the idea of there being a category of people who are very far left, modern Orthodox Jews, I was just trying in my head to figure out who this would be, if that makes sense. Yes. So very far left within Orthodox Judaism. Are they very far? Yeah. Um, they're often far left politically as well, or just left um, politically, which um, Orthodox Jews are, are typically painted as more right wing in terms of their, their politics, um, for whatever reason. So it's interesting, every group is going to have a, a spectrum at the big picture at the big level. And at the smaller level, right, you're going to have the spectrum within the spectrum, right? Even if you look at the, mm-hmm. the shade of blue within the rainbow, there is a whole rainbow of blues within that blue and the whole rainbow of red on the other side within that read. Um, And so within orthodoxy, there has been a a struggle to define what modern orthodoxy means, and what modernity and how orthodoxy comes to terms with modernity, right? There's there, there are rejectionists who will go and say, yes, there is no such thing as modern orthodoxy, we are orthodox, and we have no, um, we have nothing to do with modernity, even though they do, and they, they, you know, it's hard to to point out to people where they are, you know, being modern or not. But even within this idea of modern orthodoxy, what does it mean? Um, what does it mean to be modern? Does it mean just that you have a career and you engage with the outside world and you engage with modern thought? Or is it that you have accepted uh, the role of women as being more equal than, than it used to be? Are you going to be accepting of, um, you know, various minorities within your community and say that, you know, despite... To give the example that, that you know, uh, LGBTQ individuals within your communities, are you going to go and say, well, the Bible says, right, that this is uh, a problematic practice, and therefore we don't want to discuss it, right? The whole, maybe even go so far as to say, love the sinner and hate the sin, right, which is taking a, a, a lesson from the evangelical world, right? Uh, what is one's position vis-a-vis all of these roles um, and modern 
Orthodox Judaism, right? How mm-hmm. much modernity does one adapt? And I think that there is within there that spectrum. And then there are people who will say, well, women do belong, right, in the clergy, even if they're not going to be called rabbi. Uh, some of them will be called rabbi. Uh, women don't belong in the clergy at all. Um, I don't want to acknowledge uh, the gay members of my congregation by even giving them membership, or I want to give them membership. I and I don't want to necessarily celebrate their their marriages. Uh, Can I you know, just actually jump in about ahead. that? specifically is there any part of orthodox judaism any um are are there any orthodox jewish congregations that do same-sex marriages currently no um there are orthodox rabbis that will do Mm -hmm. it there will people that will say that that's not orthodox or or you're not orthodox because you do it remember that Mm -hmm. there is no it's not catholic in the sense that there is no pope of orthodoxy yes that that much i'm (laughs) so who gets to that who gets to call something orthodox is an we interesting talk, question i thought you were the pope of, of orthodoxy and <laughs> now i feel disillusioned that. disillusioned by this oh my god information. i'm so not the pope <laughs> <laughs> but but is moisha bain the pope of orthodoxy um yeah so i wanted to there was another line that i don't want to have so, forgotten yeah. about so though, there is where, that spectrum yeah, that's yeah. i think where that spectrum yeah, lies I and where see. that discussion that makes sense yeah, yeah. that makes sense um i just cannot hold back from asking about this part where um, he says something that he doesn't want to be forced to quote. And I, I write, wrote this down, uh, talk about women for 45 minutes. And there, that was interesting. Um, I sometimes have talked about women for 45 minutes. And then at the 45, at the 46 minute mark, boom, we're back to talking, whoever I'm talking. It's like a reverse, you know, the, do you know the, um, Bechtel. I was about to say this is the opposite, like the anti-Bechtel test. Okay, okay. I was literally like a... about to say <laughs> okay. this is the anti-Bechtel. We're going to call it the Bain test. If you're not willing to talk <laughs> about women amazing. for 45 minutes in your conversation, that's the oh Bain. My... You have you've passed the Bain test. <laughs> it's just amazing. I guess because um, I have another podcast, uh, Feminine Chaos, where you know it's two women. We talk about women sometimes for even 47 minutes or so. It just was amazing, the idea that, to, let's say you had forced him to talk about women for 45 minutes. Okay. Like, <laughs> the idea that this would be, like, the most horrible thing to happen, just, or, like, the most sort of off-topic or or um, confrontational thing to talk about women for 45 minutes. Just, I, I don't know. I found it a little funny. Yeah. I shouldn't have found it funny. I, I think it really yeah. points out, and this is at the core, I think, of what happened in this discussion and where things went off the rails, maybe, is that um, the role of women and the, f- you know, the function, women's function in contemporary Jewish society is still not settled in terms of uh, how orthodoxy sees this, right? And that there are people within orthodoxy that still have a tr- very traditional sense of uh, women and femininity and feminism and uh, think that, you know, that that's there and women are important. And the OU is by far, you know, not the worst perpetrator of this, where you see within ultra-Orthodoxy women, uh, magazines that don't even want to have pictures of women up, right? So the OU's magazine has plenty of pictures of women, had plenty of discussions, has plenty of women. Three? Sorry, I shouldn't say that. Is there a page? No. Um, in, uh, in major, you know, fu- functions within, you know, the Orthodox Union, there are women, right? So, th- so it's not that, but to say that, you know, are they in positions of religious authority? Are they, uh, what is their role in, um, you know, within the community? These are all things which 
apparently still have uh, not yet been settled. And some people Mm -hmm. don't want to talk about it. They think that there are other and bigger issues to talk about. And other people Mm -hmm. say, look, as long as there's 50% of the people that are, we haven't figured out what we're going to do with this half of the population, then that is still a very important topic. And it's worthy Mm -hmm. of discussion and figuring stuff out. So here's a question. Um, Given that there are plenty of parts of Judaism, um, plenty of congregations that just plain, you know, have women rabbis, do same-sex marriages, and, you know, have a lot of religious and sort of cultural communal activities, what then would make somebody who cares about these issues nevertheless want to sort of fight for them within Orthodox Judaism rather than join a congregation that's, you know, Jewish but not Orthodox? Well, I I guess this... It's the same argument to that, you know, Americans, when I go to Americans and I say, well, why don't you just move to Canada? Ever, all these oh, Americans you don't say, have to move, like you don't have to, up well, and, it, it's a little less complicated. To, I, I actually think it's more complicated. I oh, think okay. I would say that changing, for a lot of people, they do. There are people who say, look, there are irreconcilable differences between what I think in my Judaism and my p- politics and my identity and uh, my feminism and all of these various issues. And they say, I, I'm sorry, but there's nothing that orthodoxy can say or do that that will fix this. And so I'm going to leave orthodoxy and I'm going to become a different denomination or I'm going to leave religion Mm -hmm. altogether. But Mm -hmm. for many people, this is a fundamental identifying, you know, feature of their faith is to say, yes, I believe in a traditional model of Judaism. That is orthodox Judaism. I believe that there's a specific set of mechanisms of halakha and law and all of this and tradition uh, and customs that uh, form this body of orthodoxy. And I believe in it. I just think that there are things uh, which orthodoxy can answer, and I'm willing to work within the system because it's a system that I believe in, Mm -hmm. Um, right? And that that's a belief system is much, you know, it's just as much part of your identity as saying that I live in New Hampshire, and I'm not moving three hours north to Canada because I want the healthcare system and I want uh, a political system that is not nearly as broken right so mm-hmm. you know and people mm-hmm. don't do that they say that they will and how many canadian how many americans move to the to canada and uh, no it, it's it's some, it's some. It, it, yes it absolutely yes <laughs> i say but yes i didn't even do it for those reasons yeah. but yes that's right so um, so in that, that sense i think sense, that yeah. yeah um yeah i guess i wondered though also about just one more question specifically about that interview was just um this idea of who's biased in weighing in on this topic of the role of women in Orthodox Judaism. That I found a little interesting, the idea that anybody who thinks women should have a greater role is biased. Anybody, you know, or like, I guess I just was wondering because he was, uh, Moshe Bain was saying that because your wife is a rabbi that you are somehow like disqualified from having thoughts on this topic or well, from speaking I, I on had, this topic. I mentioned that briefly and I was like, look, I don't necessarily, it may be a conflict of interest. I'm not sure I don't want to talk about it as much, but like, yeah, I sort I did of not think that's a conflict of interest because I think that puts you, it, it shows what your values sure. are. You know what I mean? But the idea that that's a conflict of interest. I was trying to be interest. fair. I was yeah. trying to be fair, but, yeah. but you know, and look, I think that again, I'm not going to, I'm, I'm not defending him, but I'm not, I'm trying to explain. And to be fair, Mm -hmm. this is where he's coming from, is sort of saying like, hey, you know, um, I believe in the role of women. I believe that women have an expanded role, right? But anybody Mm -hmm. that believes in anything more than me, 
right? Well, I think that that's no longer, you know, acceptable, right? So the fact that your wife is a rabbi puts you out of this, the realm of this discussion, because clearly you have a set of values that is not orthodox, according to the you know, you in this way, right? And that's where I think the difficulty lies. And uh, as you're saying, I don't, I don't think that that's true. I think that that's, you know, hey, you know, like, there's nothing wrong with that. Like, I, I believe that women can have certain roles. And uh, look, I, there are things that I think also women uh, don't count for um, a prayer quorum. They, they don't count for a minion in orthodoxy. And there are women that, uh, you know, feel this acutely, and it bothers them. But orthodoxy doesn't have a mechanism in the same way that, as I, as I always say, the reason why we don't have same-sex marriage is not because we don't like, you know, gay people getting married, is we don't have a mechanism, right? The majority of Orthodox rabbis will say that there's no mechanism within the Orthodox tradition for allowing this to happen because the mechanism of a ketubah and a marriage is between a man and a woman. Um, but uh, there are Orthodox rabbis that are working around this. And there are, are there Orthodox women that are Orthodox rabbis that are saying, hey, we should allow women into a, a prayer quorum? Not really yet, and that so that's seriously constraining. But for him, that that's not enough. And to say, well, women don't belong in rabbinic leadership as well, or in terms of levels of learning and, and things like that. So, you know, that's it. Really, came, comes down to you know, I think that not necessarily a lot of people have an understanding of what this spectrum of orthodoxy is. And this interview really shows that there's a lot of um, modern orthodoxy that still has certain views on women, on gays, uh, on LGBTQ issues in general that um, are kind of more ultra rather than modern. Um, And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that's there. That's out there. What am I supposed to do about it? (laughs) Oh, I mean, I think it's interesting. I think I don't want to be, you know, the secular person who's saying everybody all must have the same, you know, secular values. And I think like back to this is really bringing me back to um, as an undergraduate at the University of Chicago, I once as a I covered an event um, for the school newspaper where an ex-gay came to speak and a lot of gay students. um, This was not LGBTQ at the time. This would have just been, you know, whichever the gay student group or something came to protest and I was covering this thing. And I I thought about what this meant, like to be an ex-gay. Right. And, you know, I don't I had trouble sort of insofar as an individual decides that their religious beliefs are more important to them than their sexual orientation. That's up to them. You know, I don't think people are obligated to live as sort of a true self according to secular values. I think where where I get a little bit stuck is just this question of, you know, children who are born into whichever group they're born into, you know, secular, religious, somewhere in between. You know, like, if you grow up as a woman in a community where a woman's role is so limited, if you grow up in a community where you learn from a young age that whoever you end up falling in love with, you know, you can't marry. Like, I think that's that's where I think it gets dicier for me. I don't Mm -hmm. know if any of that made any sense. Uh, A little bit. I think that that's at the core of the divide currently within modern orthodoxy is for, um, and this is a very American thing going back to the beginning, right? I think that, as you say, the left edge of modern orthodoxy um, is really concerned with uh, marginalized groups and giving them a voice and giving people, um, you know, larger boxes and not smaller boxes to be in and to sort of say, well, instead of saying this is what you cannot do, 
right? Let's test the limits of what it actually means to be and what you can do and how you can live as an individual. Um, and that there are groups that aren't necessarily as um, focused on that and would rather deal with other issues. Mm-hmm. I mean, marginalized, I, I think sometimes that term makes me think of not just, um, it makes me think of groups that are perhaps extremely oppressed, but also very small. And you think of women, they're yeah, not... Until, not, until 50 se- to 50, 75 years ago, women were marginalized, even though no, they I, were I'm 50%. I'm not saying that women aren't marginalized. And so I'm saying, I'm saying within, yeah, within orthodoxy, yeah. that still reverberates right. very strongly. Right. 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 And you might think yeah. that the LGBTQ issue is solved in society, right, which I don't think it entirely is, but but it is far from solved mm-hmm. within um, within orthodoxy, yeah. right? So who should, so I guess I think somebody like me, even though I'm Jewish, I don't feel like I ha- would or should necessarily have any voice in a topic like this. So is there a move within orthodoxy to, like, what is the sort of, I don't want to say reform, that's a fraught word in this context, but to, you know, move things a little bit more towards... <laughs> I don't even know what if there's no mechanism for having same-sex marriage and same-sex marriage in mainstream society is now like Andrew Sullivan is, um, you know, considered pretty Look. conservative, even though his for 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 prioritizing gay marriage rather than trans issues, rather than a whole new spectrum of types of, you know, relationships and so forth. I, I think that change takes time, right? I have this, uh, mm-hmm. this is joke that I say a lot. And my wife now says that she's put it in sermons, right? How many orthodox feminists does it take to change a light bulb? Right? 10, but they don't make a minion and change takes time. Fair right? Enough. And I think that okay. that's the, the hallmark of orthodoxy can and is and should be, right? The fact that change takes time. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I think that that's something that the people on the very left of orthodoxy need to acknowledge. And the people on the right need to wake up and realize that, you know what, the left has changed uh, the right of modern orthodoxy in ways uh, that, you know, that are more modern, that are more evolving, that are moving, right? The fact that 20 years ago, discussions weren't even happening. And now um, these discussions are happening. And there are roles for women that there are um, places where women are doing things, right? I, I like to point out that even in the ultra orthodox world, they might go and say, no, we're not feminists. We don't believe in feminism at all. And yet now they have this thing for women and that thing for women and a siddur for women, a prayer book specifically focused for women. And that wouldn't exist if not for the fact that, um, you know, second wave feminism uh, and third wave feminism was out there and advocating for change within every other branch of Judaism. And so that ends up affecting orthodoxy as well and ultra orthodoxy. So everything Mm -hmm. ends up being affected um, in this way. And so the left has to realize that the effects are going to take place, um, but slower than they want. And the right has to acknowledge that sometimes um, those changes work within their own communities and, and and that sometimes you have to let things evolve and not push back always, not push back on everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. That's uh, that's all I have to say about that. But yeah. Well, super interesting. I learned a lot. Um, I don't think I'm going to be signing up anytime soon, but um, it was that's all fine. interesting to learn all the same. It's not, it's not for everybody. And um, I don't think that they would actually ever say that either. 
This has been the first bonus episode of Bonjour Chai. The show is produced and edited by Zach Kaufman. The executive producer for CJN Podcasts is Michael Freeman. Our music is by SoCalled. We are a project of the Jewish Living Lab and are distributed by the CJN Podcast Network. You can listen to all our past episodes on our page at thecjn.ca slash bonjour, and you can subscribe to the podcast and automatically receive all episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We love it if you told a friend about Bonjour Chai. It's one of the best ways we get our new listeners. And as always, you can email us with comments at bonjour at thecjn.ca. 